Welcome to My Limited View with me, Sergio Novoa, where we share stories and expand our views. We all have a story. What's yours? What's yours? And welcome back to My Limited View. Today, I have a very special guest. Now, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I am only fanatical about one artist in the world who I've seen 46 times in I don't know how many countries. And I went to the premiere of the Madam X tour. And as I'm walking out, I look and I see one of Madonna's dancers from the iconic Blonde Ambition 1990 MTV Video Music Awards, The Girly Show. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Carlton. I know who that person is. Keep in mind, this man knows, has no idea who I am, but I've seen him so many times. I've watched those performances so many times that I felt like I knew him. So I went up to him and I try to keep myself composed as I do so well. And that is my very special guest for today. So everyone, please welcome Mr. Carlton Wilborn. Thank you, sir. It's great to see you. And uh, I want to say thank you, first of all, for even thinking of me to be included in your podcast. And, and so here we are. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. And also you are, I mean, an actor, author, entertainer, and life coach. Mm -hmm. After being around the world and performing on so many stages, how do you come back to reality after that? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I've <laughs> actually never been asked that question out of all these years. Oh, really? <laughs> never been asked, I've never been asked that question. So how do you come back to it? Look, um, coming off of somebody of that scale, you know, that is so larger than life to a lot of people around the world and um, where you've also been incredibly spoiled, right? So when I was doing, when I got parted up with M, um, that was 1990, the record labels had tons of money, um, and things were just, you know, dollars are just being flooded. So for our tour, the Blonde Ambition Tour, we only traveled with private jets. Um, like there was no commercial conversation ever. Um, we had each of us, meaning it was M and seven guys. I was one of seven. We each had our own suite, not just a hotel room. We had our own suite in each of the hotels that we stayed at. When we were at the venues, we had, so when we started the rehearsal, here's one of the things that, that, that was really amazing. And this is going to lead to my answer. I like to talk, y'all, so just bear with me. You're good. That's my other skill. You're my good. Mouth, <laughs> my body and my mouth. Um, we would, you know, she started out, you know, with writers that we got to have for our dressing rooms, right? So the way that we know the a-list person usually gets a writer that says they want water and they want only green M&Ms and they want nectarines, but only the white ones and not the pink one. Each dancer got a writer as well. And we got to say what we wanted in our dressing room. So all of that level of being spoiled is a lot. Um, how do I come, how does one, how did I come back from that? Um, one thing that I've always had in my pocket as a strategy, you know, for whenever any sort of sizable job is wrapping up, whether I was finishing, you know, a season with the Hubbard Street Dance Company in Chicago, which is where I started. Um, you know, if we had seasons at the Schubert Theater or the Amphitheater downtown, I always, Sergio, made sure that I had something else already planned 
for me to move my focus and my energy into. So I was never left with, oh my God, I'm routed out because this experience is over and what is my life and what am I going to be doing? I, I consistently have always been about that. So I think that has probably saved me more than anything, just having a strategy to go to before the gig ends. I mean, good for you for having the discipline. How old were you when you uh, were on the tour? I was 26 when I um, got the Blonde Ambition Tour. I am a, a real deal, basically child performer. I've been doing this since I was 13 years old, full steam. Um, I've never taken a break from it. Um, so, you know, I knew how to come into it in a certain kind of way to navigate it. So I never really felt like my version of 26, having grown up on the streets in Chicago, a little bit rough and ragged, you yeah. know, I, I was that dude. Um, yeah. I was well-groomed into life. And now, so you've started performing at 13 and you said, yeah. give me a little bit on your, how you got started. You started in Chicago. I did. Yeah. So I am from Chicago and, you know, I guess, you know, listen, you know, God does amazing things with us. And I happen to be one of the humans that was anointed with a clear path for myself very young. I knew at 17 what I wanted to be doing. Even though I started doing things at 13, I was brought into it at 13 by my brother, basically. Um, Somehow my oldest brother um, got us a job, dude, at 13 every Saturday. My brother and I would travel from the south side of Chicago all the way downtown to a what was then a nightclub on the weekends and at night called Dingbats. And we would go there on Saturday afternoons and perform and teach kitty disco lessons for bar mitzvahs. So that was my very first job. And I did that. But again, that was something that just my brother, like I didn't say I was a dancer. I didn't say I wanted to be a dancer. Cut to, I was planning to do all of high school in Florida. That didn't work out. I ended up back in Chicago, scramble, scramble. My parents had to find a school for me to go to because I, I basically pulled myself out of school in Florida three months into the school year. And by the time I got home, the best option after my mom and an eighth grade teacher of mine got connected, they came up with a strategy, which got me introduced by happenstance to a woman named Diane Brooks. So Carolyn Curry was my eighth grade teacher. She was my first angel. Diane Brooks was my second angel. And I call them angels because Carolyn took the stand for me just out of nowhere. You know, my mom ran into her at the grocery store. So it's like, hey, Carlton's back. It's the middle of the school year. We don't want him to go to school in the neighborhood because we grew up in the hood. It was dangerous. And Carolyn said, I'll talk to some colleagues. Diane Brooks was her colleague who ran the dance department at Whitney Young Magnet High School. I didn't know this woman. She said, I'll work with him because I had missed the academic testings for the magnet school. So the only way to get in would be to audition over the summer. Again, I never had conversations around dance. This literally all this strategy was God. Knowing what he wanted to do with me all along. So cut two, I worked with Diane for six weeks. She taught me the piece. Come the summer, I mean, come the fall when I had to audition, she was one of the adjudicators. I had to 
basically prove the chops that I exercise now, which was prove my acting skills and my dance skills. How did my acting skills show up? I had to go to that audition. I had to pretend like I didn't know Diane. And I had to pretend like I was learning the combination for the first time and then pull it off good enough. And it all worked and poof. So that's how I started. I joined uh, that school. We were on a school outing um, for the weekend. You know how they'll take a bunch of kids out to somewhere and happen to. Oh, wait, let me back up. So again, strategy. I'm watching CBS News and they're doing an expose on this um, American dance prodigy named Shauna Goddard. And she and I were the same age as I'm watching the news, 14. I'm like, oh my God, she's young. She was the youngest professional dancer in North America at the time, 14 years old. She interviewed well. I was like, wow, this chick is amazing. That was that, CBS, forever. Three months later, school has the outing. They take us on this Saturday to go see a dance concert. I had forgotten about what I saw. I'm sitting in the seats, matinee performance, house lights go down, curtain flies. First person that walks out, I'm like, oh my God, it's that girl. And it was Shauna. Yeah. And it was me sitting in that seat. Oh my God. And I said, literally that day, sitting in those seats, this is what I want to do. I want to dance with that girl in this company. And six months later, I left my parents' house, took the bus downtown, scrambled around, found out where the studio was, started taking classes, got on scholarship, joined the company, became their principal dancer. I was there for five years, left there, went to Australia, worked with the Sydney Dance Company, just workshopping with them for about six months. And then I moved out here in 1989 and the rest is history. And now I do all kinds of things. I'm like the circus man. It is interesting how the universe, God will put in front of you what you need. And I always say Mm. there's inspiration all around us. If we stop to just notice and pay attention, you will get uh, tapped by this inspiration. You know, I, I, my saving grace was martial arts. I saw, yeah, I saw someone in high school get attacked by two teenagers. And I remember thinking, what would I do if I ever got attacked? I had no concept of fighting. I'd never been in a fight. Mm-hmm. That same day, keep in mind, I took the same bus to, home, to go home and to go to school every day. So it was a route I knew. We stopped at a red light on Mission in Cortland. And I kind of glanced to my left and I see a karate school. And having had that visual fresh in my mind of this guy getting attacked, I thought, oh, maybe I should try martial arts. And then I went ahead and came back. It was August 27th, 1989. And I went into the school to sign up. And then they give me the disclaimer in case of any injury or death. And I thought, death? What? You know, and I was on my own at this time. So I didn't have anyone to consult with. And then I remember rationalizing and thinking, look, if a seven-year-old can have a black belt, I'm sure I'll be okay. And that was the missing link that gave me determination. And what age were you at that time? I was 16. Okay. And that was the missing link that gave me determination, perseverance, athleticism. I had no idea I was athletic. My ability Hmm. to emulate a body is like, I want you to do this. And I was like, boom. They're like, oh, wow, you catch on really quickly. So I am forever grateful to martial arts, to that guy Mm. getting beat up, to the red light, to all those things that led me to on a path that I 
had no idea. Then discovering I was gay, learning to fight was actually a helpful thing. Um, so yeah, I, when you say, you know, you're 14 and you see this thing, it's like, you needed to be there at that moment to watch that girl perform fast forward. You're watching her on stage and also just your ability to manifest what you want. You said, I want to dance with her. I want to dance for this company. And you did the steps to follow, which now that you're a life coach, um, one of the things that I've been told, and I think I recognize my ability to manifest what I want is pretty on point. When I saw the secret, I thought, oh, is that what you guys call it? I've been doing this forever. Um, you mm. seems like you definitely have the ability to manifest. How has everything you've done in life come into play when you're being a life coach? Well, let me say this first. I'm really clear that any abilities that I have are not mine and I can't take credit for them solely. You know, I am a God person. I know that there is without question a force way larger than my fucking wisdom telling me what to do, telling me when to do it. So I want to, you know, make sure that I pipe myself down a little bit in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to say like, I got all the tricks and I'm Mr. Know-it-all. Mm, I got a lot of grace, dude. I oh, yeah, got a no. lot of mercy. <laughs> I got a lot of guidance. Yeah. Um, and so how does that fit into my life coaching? You know, I started, interesting enough, again, implanted into my brain. I remember Sergio being about, and I say this all the time, being about eight or nine years old in Chicago with this feeling on my soul. I don't remember what little words my brain, my small brain said back then, but I remember thinking that when I grow up, I'm supposed to speak to thousands of people about their power or something like that. I remember that. Cut to, this is going to date me, um, being 58 years old, freshman 58, <laughs> um, when MTV had behind the music, right? Uh -huh. And they were doing some interview of some artist who had transitioned into ministry or something like that. I was here in LA. I was leaving my, my bedroom, crossing the hallway to go to the bathroom. And as I was hearing this journey that this person found for themselves, um, I fell against the, the um, frame of the door and just started sobbing because I knew in my soul that this was what I was supposed to do. And I couldn't figure out the outlet for it. Right. Gotcha. But I just was like, how, how am I supposed to do this? And so I started writing. Um, so I'm a poet first and I literally just got a whiteboard and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I know I've been hearing this whisper since I was young that I'm supposed to help people. So maybe I should just start getting my story out. And I had a whiteboard. I put it up in my bedroom and I just, again, guidance. I thought I'm just going to make a list of, of headlines, like one lines of that day my bike got stole, that day I got kicked out of school, that day my mama told me to, and I had 13 one lines and I got those out and then I would wake up in the morning and I just would look at them and let my spirit tell me which one to build out. And then, I, and then that one line became a piece of poetry. Once I got all 13 done as a piece of poetry, I built them out into prose. And once the prose component of each of the 13 was completed, then I basically just did a cut and paste and figured out which one makes sense to start with. And that, and those became the chapters of my book. 
And so I, I sell that to say, I just knew that my journey, the wild and curious and amazing journey that's been my life was not to be done in vain. And it was not exclusively about me just getting to the other side of all of it to applaud myself and pat myself on the back that I really knew what it was like to feel locked up on the inside. And I didn't wish that on anybody else. And so I hence became my more strategic work to position myself for the work that I get to do now that helps people here in North America and around the world. What is the title of your book? Uh, my first book, uh, my autobiography is called Front and Center, How I Learned to Live There. You can go to my website, which is carltonwilborn.com. You can find it there or my umbrella website, which is livingfrontandcenter.com. Or you can find it on Amazon. Pretty much anywhere that you can find a book, you can get my book. Yes. My second book, yeah. My second book, which is my official life coaching curriculum, um, is called I Am Empowered, Igniting Freedom, Courage, and Healing. So the autobiography dropped in 2007 and the workbook dropped in 2011. Excellent. Congratulations. You know, it's interesting to hear what you were saying, because a lot of times when I wanted to do something, I couldn't necessarily articulate it, but there was something in me that said, you're going to do this, or this is going to happen. And through the grace of, again, the universe, God, everything, everyone I've encountered in life, somehow things. Have Are you happened. a God person? So religion was abused in my household. So I am a little... Okay. I'm a little, I believe there's a higher power other than myself, for sure. Okay. I believe that this higher power guides me and puts in front of me what I need and whatever right. I'm supposed to either learn or teach. Do I believe, right. I don't believe in the God that I need to go to a space every Sunday, get on my knees and pray and be afraid. I grew up fearing God. And when I finally had enough logic and reason within myself, I thought, this is not the God that I think of. You can't tell me on one hand that God made us all and we're all wonderful and tell me that I'm going to burn in hell because I'm gay. These two things don't make sense. And I grew up Catholic, so I don't know what kind of religion you grew up in, but I would witness these, you know, nice gestures at church on Sundays by various people. But then I would encounter these same people the other days of the week and they were awful. And I remember yeah. even at the age of seven thinking, this is weird. This doesn't make any sense. Why are they so nice at church? God forbid you sit on their little section. So that sure, really sure, turned sure. me off. And my grandmother would say awful things, say, you know, God invented AIDS to punish gay people. Um, she had suspicions I was gay. So yeah. in her limited view, she would try and plant things in my head, which later required me going to therapy, hypnotherapy and doing so much self-work to get rid of all the negative thoughts. Um, so because of that, when people bring up religion and God, and they're really, I've met three amazing Christians who I love dearly. And these people- I'm Christian. You're Christian. <laughs> I am Christian. Yeah. I'm a full stock Christian. I don't fuck around with it. I'm yeah. Christian. And then, but everyone yeah. else that I encountered, it was like, why are you using this to control people? And then the biggest argument I had being a Latino person, you know, religion, Christianity, Christianity was not part of our culture. The Europeans, mm. the conquerors brought it on to us and they used it mm. to control us. So at times I would find myself conflicted. Why am I honoring a God that was used to control us? We existed on this side of the world before the Spaniards got here. We had, you know, look at Machu Picchu. 
I mean, to this day, they cannot figure out how these structures were built and they weren't praying to a God. I've had this, I'm a spiritual person. I do wholeheartedly know that whatever talent, experience, joy I have in the world is not simply because of my doing. Um, I'm, I am convinced that I cannot always drive the vehicle. At times, I just have to guide it. And the vehicle is going to take me where I need to go. There are many times sure. I'm like, why am I here? I don't get why I'm having this experience. And I've learned to let it ride out, listen to my gut, which is, I think, something a lot of us are not really trained or taught to do. There's so much sure. outward noise yeah. and we look for external validations and confirmations. And in a really young age, I thought, what do I feel? What, do, what does my gut tell me? And so this day I will meditate. I'll turn everything off and I'll sit down for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, one prayer I do have, I say, God, please show me whatever it is I am not seeing right now. And that is like one prayer that I do have. Um, and, and you use the word God. And that's just so, Yes. So when my... So, so hang on for a second. So hang on for a second. So with that fact being, being the case, mm -hmm. right? This is the conversation that I think is important to have that a lot of people don't navigate is making the distinction, critical distinction between human interpretation and the holistic love of God. They're True. not the same thing. True. Totally so agree. for the people that come up with I've, how many people have I talked to that came through the Catholic system and got dealt with in similar ways to you, that ain't about God. That's about a human's perspective about God that's yeah. strange and curious and twisted. But I think your soul, what I think is, is interesting is that your soul knows enough truth that when push come to shove and you need something, you pray to what you have said you call God. Well, and so in response to that, my first language is Spanish. And sure. when I am in any kind of primal situation where it's fear, joy, love, you know, nervous, whatever it is, I default to in Spanish, I'll say, oh, God, please take care of me, because that is the phrase that is like the primal basic phrase that I have. Um, or even if I get startled and someone does something, I'm like, oh, hijo de puta. Um, you know, it's like son of a bitch, but it comes out in Spanish. So those are the moments where that phrasing comes out, where I say, God, um, I am aware that there is definitely a greater, higher power than myself and Madonna. Um, <laughs> so I am for sure beyond her. I just feel for, for me, my journey, religion, and I can definitely rationalize this as an adult, religion was used not to empower, but to control. And I had to do so much therapy to get rid of the years of brainwashing, being told that gay is bad. I remember not knowing what gay was and saying, boy, whatever gay is, I don't want to be that. Fast forward mm. at 20 years old, I'm looking in the mirror. I've been hearing nothing but awful things about gay people. So how can I now love myself and be this person when everything I've been told is bad? So at one point I did pick up the Bible because I wanted to understand where are people coming up with this? And I walked away. And now again, I have three really dear friends who I love and I would call them and say, Hey, I read this passage. 
I'm a little confused by this. And then they had different answers and they would give me an explanation. And I go, huh, okay, that's interesting. You know, and I would kind of leave it at that. So what I walked away with, and I didn't finish the Bible, to be honest, but I walked away with a few things. God is love. God is in us. Anytime we're not acting from a place of love, we're not being godly. That was my okay. lesson. So when I hear people quote the Bible and use it, and I feel like, oh, you're, you're not using it the way it's intended. This is not black and white text. This is, these stories, these fables are here to help us, to help us understand and be kind and loving. And when you are deviating from that, you're getting away from the purpose, the meaning of it, why it's here. So that was, and gotcha. I did this as an adult. I came to eventually looking at God and what it represents for me as something that mm-hmm. serves my, serves me. Perfect. You know, awesome. but as soon as people start with the Bible and you got to go to, I was like, I tense up. I mean, but again, I think that, yeah, but I think the thing, and, and a lot of people tense up to that, but I, the thing that I think is really important, and I will always say is make sure that your upset is not with religion. Your upset is with the person that misinterpreted what the Bible has to say. Because it's the people that are saying, we're trash, we ain't nothing. God ain't never said that. If, God, if, if, if we know that God is all love, right, which we both are in agreement to, that's what we know about God. Yeah. So any perspective that is contradicting that ain't about God. That's True. about somebody's viewpoint about it. Totally. I totally agree go. with you. You're absolutely right. And maybe I needed this reminder because when I see, I mean, look at what's happening politically and what they're trying to do. And I feel like, God, you're, this is not, you're doing this the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. So for people who don't know, how do you describe or explain life coaching? Yeah. So for me, the difference uh, or, or what quantifies being a life coach, I always say that it is the work of a therapist with strategy. So when I have gone to the three different people that I've gone to over my lifetime that are therapists, it's literally just a talking head in, you know, event. We talk, they hear me express what I'm going through. They might ask some questions, but there's not a system put in place specifically for me to help me address or get from point A to point C. And that's what the work of a life coach is. They literally give you accountability, their tactical exercises, assignments to do, da 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 da. da. Yeah, it's in, it's funny you say that because when I went to therapy, I remember I sat down and I said to my therapist, "I don't just want to come here and talk to you for an hour and then walk away. Every time I leave here, I need to leave with actionable tasks, things that I can do that will let me know that I'm going in the right direction." And mm. at times, I would say something, and then I would just say quiet and wait for the therapist to give me something. Because when I first went, it was word vomit, one, because I'm a talker. And two, (laughs) I was finally letting things out. So it was like, you know, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm just talking every day. I'm not really getting anything back. So I shifted my approach and I was like, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? So I do like that distinction. And you're right. It is about, I, I was a personal trainer. So having that measurable attainable mm-hmm. time bound yep. specific goal was key. And it's something that I'm, I'm a very task oriented person. So it's an environment in which I thrive and can do well. Basically for, for people that are hearing this, just, you know, 
focus on the second word, coach. Yeah. A coach of anything, a coach for football, a coach for, you know, martial arts is pushing you, gearing you. If you start to get upset or you start to feel weak in it, they don't really have a place for that. They're nudging you to the next level. That's not something that a therapist has got to do, or at least not my experience inside of therapy. A lot of people look at life coaching. They're like, oh, that's a scam. That's a waste of money. How do you explain it? And they do the same thing with God and the Bible. So there you go. <laughs> or, 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 or chocolate ice cream. So or, there you, you go. Or, or even personal trainers. I'm like, look, or personal trainers. So as much as go. I love to work out, if you put a trainer in front of me, I will be working out that much harder. It's just a default. Um, sure. So one of the things that I, let me shift that question. One of the things that I've been, my journey to better understand myself and why I do the things I do has been to kind of look and take inventory of the things that happened that caused me trauma that maybe at the time I was not aware of it. And for, I'll give you a perfect example. I went to hypnotherapy. I feel that I hold myself back and I want to figure out why I do that. He asked me a bunch of questions and I've done some work on myself. So it took me back to a very specific moment in time. I was about 12 years old. I was watching TV on the floor. My brother and my grandmother were sitting down. I fell asleep on the floor. They thought I was still asleep but I was waking up. And as I was waking up, they were talking about me and they were talking about my mannerisms and it's in surgery a little bit funny. They didn't know that I could hear this. Mm. Fast forward, I go to hypnotherapy and where did my subconscious take me? It took me there. And I thought, mm. this is the first time where I started to doubt and question who I was because of the mm. words they said. Let me tell you when wow. I tell you yeah, that dude. I, uh, ton of bricks just fell off my shoulders. And I was about 30 at the time. And I walked away from that session thinking, oh my God, I have been viewing the world through this frosted glass because mm -hmm. of them. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been on this journey to understand like, huh, why did I, why was my reaction that? Why was I so angry? And I had a lot of anger when I was younger. Um, I mean, I was insufferable in my twenties. I honestly had to talk to anyone. <laughs> I look at the 26-year-old Sergio and I want to put him in a little cage and say, stay here, just calm down, just breathe, just stop, mm. don't move. <laughs> that journey, I've considered working with life coaches in the past. One of my really good friends, is, he's a life coach and I've known him for years. He used to be my boss. He's a phenomenal individual. And I do see that people can benefit from it. And sometimes, I guess it, this goes down to the cliche when the student's ready, the teacher appears mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter how many skills I have and how I may want to help you. If you are not ready, you're not ready. And the person may not even know they're ready. I mean, I just recently discovered I was, <clears throat> I say almost molested and I need to stop saying that when I was eight years, six or seven, eight years old, my cousin tried to penetrate me. He didn't succeed, but he, touched my penis. He grabbed my body. He had me grab his body. Oh. Yeah. And I remember saying, oh, I was lucky because he didn't go inside. <clears throat> he actually for years raped two of my cousins. So, but the reality is that was a traumatic experience. And I Absolutely. was, yeah. And I was interviewing someone and I asked them the question. I said, how do you think that experience 
is showing up for you as an adult. As soon as I so asked that cute. question, I, the question was, I asked that question of myself because my first exposure to sexual contact, especially with men, was when I was about seven, eight years old. Two mm -hmm. men, two adult men tried to do sexual things to me at a time I wasn't even ready nor aware of it. And that led to guilt and shame. So I walked around feeling guilt and shame for the longest time to perfect example. I, my first serious, serious relationship where I fell madly in love and we moved in together. I had a difficult time performing oral sex because mm. there was this guilt associated to it. And I remember walking away. That's that. what you were asked to do to the perpetrator. That's what I was asked to do. Yeah. That's what I was asked to do. Gotcha. And gotcha. I walked away and I said to him at the time, which he didn't understand, but hopefully now he does. I said, I shouldn't feel guilty about wanting to please my partner. There is something wrong with that. I need to explore what that is. Of course, everyone around me thought I just wanted to like be a big hoe and sleep around. I was like, no, I should, I should be able to physically express my affection towards you. I want to make your body feel good. Why am I hesitant? Um, fast forward or now kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it real y'all. I'm, I'm joking. So and Carlton, I got it. We going there. Wow. He said it. I didn't. I'm <laughs> mad at you. I'm mad at you. My Latin Go ahead. It, is not, it is not good that I'm making myself. Happy, happy Tuesday, y'all. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> they call it Fat Tuesdays for a reason. Okay. No. Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. As you, I don't know if you know this, Carlton. I am a stand-up comedian. So and you to... will not edit that out. Don't you <laughs> dare edit that out. <laughs> and some of the stuff that comes out of my mouth. I'm just, you know, even now, I, I sometimes I question. I was like, why? Why is this a thing? Why do I feel this way? I shouldn't, I was afraid to express affection because, mm. and, and I, we, I did an episode recently about trauma and I realized mm. the 20 year old Sergio was so hungry for love that he was getting it in all the wrong places. Um, I don't believe we date the wrong person. I believe we date people who are supposed to teach us something. And for whatever reason, however long it takes you to learn that lesson, you will have different players in a way reflect whatever it is you need to Absolutely. learn. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't look at any of my excess with, well, maybe one I do regret, um, with any major regret because I learned something. Even I was once engaged and I was madly in love with this person and we broke up and I was devastated. And after this relationship ended, I walked away with the knowledge of, you are capable of really loving someone else. Like mm -hmm. you have the capacity to love someone in a way that was, you know, wholehearted. Like I compare my 23 year old falling in love with the, that surge of falling in love night and day. Um, and it's been a journey to, to be able to feel free to express that. And I'm Absolutely. very outwardly expre uh, expressive. I send flowers, mm -hmm. cards. I do all these gestures. I pay attention but deep down, one of the things I worked on in therapy, I remember I was in Barcelona and I met this guy who I was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I mean, I was just <laughs> rerouted my trip to see him. And I was in Ibiza and I was talking to him every day and we were messaging and I couldn't wait to see him. So instead of me going to Madrid, like I was originally going to do, I went back to Barcelona and I get there 
and he meets me at the airport and it was like, Hey, and I was like, what happened, Sergio? What happened to, I can't wait to see him and hug him and kiss him and, and like say all these feelings. And so you felt the sort of blandness or he felt the blandness. I felt the blandness. Wow. Or my outward expression was bland. My intentions were totally different. I remember I went back to my therapist and I said, what, this, this doesn't make any sense, you know, and he helped me figure out and, you know, I got sick of hearing, you know, because of your childhood. And I said to him at one point, I said, look, I'm 26 years old. How long am I going to be singing this tune? He said, in order for you to let go of the past, you have to know what you're letting go of. Until we deal with it. That's how long. And, and I thought, well, that's a really amazing thing. Sorry, I want to jump in because that's a really powerful thing that you shared that I had not actually really thought of or experienced uh, with any of the people that I've worked with, where you're saying, your inner self knew and was feeling a ramped up emotion about this person, but your outside, your external presentation was not a match. Correct. That's really fascinating. Interesting. Okay. And I, I couldn't, I remember thinking, I almost felt trapped and I was like, why am I not expressing it? Um, Sure. And I've gone through, you know, and again, I was a child back then. Um, and I've learned so many other things since then. But yeah, I've, it's been this journey of don't be afraid to express how you feel. Don't waste your time, emotions on someone who doesn't deserve it. Um, be vulnerable, be open, don't overshare. Don't put it all out. And it's this kind of little tug of war. And as I've gone through through this journey, a few good things have come out. One, I believe people the first time when they show me who they are. And the optimistic surgery, the trainer surgery would see you for your potential and hope that you would get there. And now it's like, no, I got to see you for who you are, where you are right now, especially if I'm going to be romantically involved with you. If you're a casual friend. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, some interesting things uh, come up for me. So let me question and then I'm going to share. In your trauma work that you've been doing for yourself and and, and in the the, um, interview that you said that you recently did, Mm -hmm. have you um, become familiar with the book, What Happened to You? I have no, no, I can't. I'm not familiar with it. Oh, brother, brother, please. Help yourself with that. Okay. It came out in 2001. Oprah is the face of it. She's okay. obviously marketing it, but it's really the work of a PhD doctor by the name of Bruce D. Perry. The book dropped in fall of 21. I got winded it. Then I went through the book in December, meaning that just passed. So to this conversation that we're talking about trauma and coaching oneself or finding the guidance or the guidepost to help you along your way, which speaks to really what my work right now is really about personally for myself is really getting to my authentic self, right? And I realize in order for me to get to living authentically as Carlton, I have to go and do the deep dive work. So what happened to you speaks exactly like what you were sharing where 
Bruce, and he's done all kinds of studies and all kinds of things to confirm this as science, that, you know, if our system, our little baby system is traumatized at a, and he's saying within the first few months to maybe three years at most initially, if there's a certain degree of trauma that happens around that time, if it's not properly addressed, da, 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 which for most of us, it's not, we then live that out. Even though we don't want to, even though we say we have bigger dreams, if it's not dealt with. So what came to me, which was glaring and such a freaking breakthrough, because I've always known of, I, so I was sexually abused as well um, and full steam, like had activities going on with my karate instructor. Okay. So when I was- That would have been yeah. very traumatizing for me because he was a, he was my first father figure when I left my family. Gotcha. So gotcha. oh, that would have really been a doozy. <laughs> so me and my brother, Tony, who's three years older than I am, every summer when we were kids. So my dad had two sisters that lived in Florida and we would go to Florida every summer and stay with her and stay with the, the other sister. And we took karate lessons and it was our karate instructor over the over those summers started at eight years old it went up until i was 13. and my activity with him was exclusively i was eight at the time he was 26 when it started so clearly way off basically he wanted me to fuck him oh so our, our entire activity was me putting my thing inside of his butt he never wanted to put his mouth on it. He never wanted me to put my mouth on him. He never wanted me to jack him. It was literally for me to penetrate him. So I grew up for many years, me being bisexual, pretty much my whole life. I've always been drawn to women. I've always been drawn to men, still like them both. But when I started getting into my men activity, I realized I could not get turned on by a guy unless I was dealing with his butt because of that earlier experience for me. And it took a really good buddy of mine, Joseph. He's a gay guy, but we never had anything. We were just friends. He was one of the first friends I had when I moved out here. And I was sharing with him that I was dating some guys and I was coming up against some issues in the relationships that I was having because, again, I was one-sided. And the only way that I knew to get really stirred is if you showed it off to me or I could touch it or stick things in, like all that stuff that I get groomed to do. And my buddy was like, no, man, you've got to you know, realize that you can flip and do these things. And it really took that friend guidance that he gave me was the rich why I was supposed to be friends with him. Yeah. So that I could get spoken to in a way that opened me up to see intimate dealings from a much broader, healthier perspective. Yeah. And. Um, like you say now, uh, a <laughs> <laughs> cut to me. You got your version. <laughs> I got my version. <laughs> In two no, way, it is true though. It is uh, true. I remember for the first six years, but but, but, but hang on, because I want to stay on that point in regards to trauma, and and the book. What happened to you? So I always knew that I was sexually abused. I've known this. My dad was a raging alcoholic when I was growing up. We were woken up to, you know, 530. I, it was really around like 6 o'clock, 615 in the morning when we had our individual rooms. And my dad would flick on the lights, cursing, calling us out of our names. Y'all goddamn motherfucking kids. Where my fucking keys at? 
the you know the disease had taken over his brain when he was drunk from the night before and he didn't know when he where he left his keys and he was leaving to go to work so i say all that to say i was aware of all of those things and other things my whole life but when i read that book this past december it gave me a distinction sergio that i had never ever perceived in my life and what it gave me was my little soul took those examples of being dealt with in those kinds of ways to mean i interpreted that my little soul interpreted that to say there was no value for carlton and when i and when i read that dude in december it broke me it was very emotional for me and it still is a process of me to write that you know and so when i look at myself i'm going why have I always been dating this kind of person? Why am I still in that behavior that even I say I don't want to do, but you still keep dipping in it? And you know that this person don't treat you right, but you still keep waiting for them or even reaching out when you get lonely. What the fuck? Why are you doing that? Because even though I got conditioned in a way that said that there was no value for Carlton, I drank that juice to some degree myself. Yes. And dealt with myself as if I was not of high value. And so I want whoever's given a listen to this to really be uh, piped into what Sergio and I are speaking about right now. And it's getting to the root of the cause of what has you unsettled in your life, you know, because we can keep having big dreams and we can have big goals and big visions and all that is chock full on point. But if we don't find the ways, find the courage to step into that extremely uncomfortable realm that for some of us, we buried, for some of us, we see it, but we don't want to look too intricately at it. We're doing a disservice to our ultimate dreams. No, that, and I agree with you. I mean, that was one of the things that I basically realized. And as I've been navigating life, I thought many times in the past, I was there, but I wasn't showing up. So many times I felt like if you encountered me 10, 20 years ago, you didn't see Sergio. You saw an individual who was preoccupied with how he should behave, how, what he should do, how he should act, all these things. And when I finally realized that, I thought, oh my God, I've been robbing myself of so many mm -hmm. experiences. And I've robbed other people of really experiencing the person I am. And many times I look back at my behavior and I have to be mindful not to punish myself because at that time mm -hmm. I did what I thought was best or what I was capable of doing. But I look back and I feel like I abused myself. I allowed myself to be in situations that were not good for me. And I let them happen. Um, and it was this, it's, it's always been this tug of war with me because, you know, at 16, no one is teaching you how to do things. So I learned by bumping against things and readjusting. So that led to me having this really loud voice because I didn't have a voice as a child. And when I finally was free, I was like, I'm never going to let anyone do this to me. So the slightest touch mm. of you trying to control me or trying to whatever, I was like, you know, and it took a while. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It took a while for me to be like, oh, Sergio, you are angry. And even now I have to catch myself if something happens and I have a, an intense reaction. I'm like, well, easy, easy there. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that uh, next told me once, he said, you use a cannon on a fly. And I never forgot that phrase. He's like, I understand you're That's upset. That's a great title. I, I've learned through that my 
immediate reaction is not necessarily at the moment in time. It's the accumulated non-reactions I've had where mm -hmm. I felt that I was, you know, not heard, not listened to, Absolutely. not honored. So, and now I'm like, okay, calm down. The best thing I've done yeah. is don't react. Just let it sit for a little bit. Don't, you know, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, Sergio, you crossed me the wrong way. I will fuck you up and I would let you know it. And it was, you know, it was this intensity coming at me, sure. you know, and it, and it's very difficult to tell someone like me who has survived this way because clearly I have survived. So it and has thrived. Served. Yeah. It and has survived. Yeah. yeah. And that's true. And thrived. So it's like, wait a minute, what I'm doing is working. Why should I change it? And you know, it took a while. And I, and I on purpose add that word in because for a lot of us that come from a drama background, right? Or, you know, come from a traumatized stuff. Um, we, I know that I got overconditioned for too long that was only about surviving it and applauding myself for making it through it. And I did not have the perspective that the true God that I understand, the true order of life is to have a life that is a well-lived life. And that's called thriving inside of it. So yes. again, you know, I'm loving this conversation that you and I are sharing. We're both being very transparent, which is awesome. But I know that there are some people that are hearing this that have not been able to put the pieces of the puzzle together to the ways that you and I have and the ways that we're going to continue to do. But, you know, for whoever is out there in the middle of it, you're deep in it. Maybe you're, you know, hearing this in private somewhere. Um, don't lose sight of the fact. And I know that it feels hard. I know that in a lot of ways you don't even see your way right now. Maybe these words that Sergio's giving or that I'm giving is the best that you can get right now. You can arrive at a place in your life where you literally will be able to smile and be in a glowing excitement, seeing how well your life is happening and how well you're thriving, even in spite of, or even with this history being part of your story. Yeah. I just want and to say that. That is absolutely true. I mean, through the, I'm going to use the word you like here, through the grace of God, <laughs> I have managed to somehow land on my feet. And let me tell you, and anyone who's listened to the previous podcast will know there are many times I got up and I thought, how is this going to work out? And I've always mm -hmm. told myself, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And somehow things miraculously happen. <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's yeah. work hasn't been easy. Um, and it's, I I've learned through this to take, uh, um, take ownership of my contribution sure. to the harm that I've mm -hmm. caused myself and realizing that I caused this harm because I wasn't dealing with the trauma, which led to behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Which led to behavior that I wasn't proud of things that didn't reflect who I was, the core of who I was. And that led me to do shameful behavior and shameful behavior leads to shame and more shameful behavior. And it's this vicious cycle. So as I've gone through Absolutely. these, yeah, and I've analyzed and I'm like, oh, got it. This, this is where this started. And this is an opportunity for you to stop this. Like the, the buck stops here. The other gift that that book, What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and, 
and Bruce D. Perry for anybody that's trying to find some guidance. If you can get an audio version of that book, just pick it up, take a look at it, see if it resonates. You know, I'm never to say to somebody, even in regards to my God realm, I'm never to say to somebody, this is what you should do. I offer what has worked for me. Yeah. I give as many anecdotes as I can say has allowed me to get from here to here to here to here. The main point is to what the book has really done for me is not, it's helped me see how to stop slapping my hand about my, about my strange choices. I no longer, I no longer call them bad. I no longer call them crazy. I no longer call them stupid. I realize, and it really helped me see this, not just get to that part that says, oh, there's no value in Carlton and start to turn that. But it start, it, it allowed me to say for these choices that I've made as an adult, right? That I stepped back into even after I said I wouldn't or whatever, whatever. I wasn't a bad person for doing that. I didn't do anything wrong by doing that or inappropriate. I was conditioned that way. And that's beyond me. That's some stuff that get planted into me that was not of my doing. So I ain't going to take the slam on myself as if I'm doing all this craziness over and over again. Now, where I can take responsibility for is if I then see what you and I now see. And then we keep doubling back and not being about the business of writing it. Then I got something to say to me. But if I was blind about what the nucleus was really about, give yourself a break, person. Yeah. Give yourself a break. For whatever your life looks like, if it's you didn't hurt somebody, you killed somebody, you raped somebody, you feel horrible about it, whatever, whatever, your young soul got fed the wrong conditioning. Who you are, I don't know who you are. I don't know you, but what I know that God, as I'm that person, what I know that God, God created only good. What if nothing was broken? What if all these things that you have said were a problem, shouldn't have happened, da, 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 was all on point, strategic design and influence to get you to where you are right now that helps you serve people, be a testimony for somebody else? Because what I do know, and it's the reason that I wrote my autobiography front and center, how I learned to live there. Again, no, I don't, uh, my understanding is that none of us go through the things that we go through solely just about us. Yeah. It's not just about us healing it. It's not just about us getting to the other side. It's about being a vessel that can be a leading and a guiding for somebody else in some kind of way. So this, what if nothing was broken, got me to look at my childhood, my teenage years, my young adult years. So now I'm, I'm not 100% there all the time, but I can quicken myself to calm down my red heat about whatever and say, how has this, how did that on purpose fuel me to be better? Maybe not for the first you know, decade of my awareness of it or two, three decades of it. But that's okay because it ain't over till, till it's over. Yeah. So if I can now use and see, prime example, my perpetrator, abuse from eight to 13, on point. 
I got away from him at 13. So eight, nine, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years, those first four years, it was a, that well-constructed design that we've all heard about that the perpetrator will do that's so finessed and so clever that you don't really realize you're being taken advantage of. That's how that happened. So I was accepting it. I was going along with it. I got away from it because when I was 13 was the first time that he sort of forced me. We were in the dojo, finishing one of our rounds in the evening. The other kids were leaving. I stayed with him. He used to um, house sit for these white people and I would stay with him at the house. And as the kids were leaving the dojo, he closed the door and locked it. And he was first time trying to do something with me in the dojo. And I had come to my senses enough to realize now this summer, this shouldn't be going on. And I tried to stop him and he threw me down on the ground and was trying to pull my pants. And I was fighting him as best I could. And he came to his senses. Cut two years forward. I'm, di I'm diagnosed HIV positive in 1985. So I've been HIV positive all these years. I say all that to say I blamed me getting diagnosed on him. Not that I got it from him, but because I was groomed to not know how to properly honor my body and not how to properly honor someone else's body, right? And I got groomed that really young. So going all the way back to my whole point about what if nothing was broken, because that's how I started with this. In my autobiography, Front and Center, how I learned to live there, the, the um, thread that, that links each of the chapters, Sergio, is um, an entrapment that I did with private investigators. I got private investigators involved in 2006. Got back in contact with my perpetrator. I say all this to say, through that whole thing, I had to fly to Florida for the whole thing. I ended up in a, in a situation where I asked my perpetrator, because when we did the entrapment over the phone, though he seemed broken and all of that, there were a couple of things I wasn't quite sure sat well with me where I could trust him. Because my thing was never that I wanted to end somebody's life because they dealt with me in that way. I, I just wanted to make sure that nobody else got handled the way that I got handled. Yeah. So spoke to the sheriffs at the sheriff's office in Florida, said, I need to see him. I need to sit with him and I will know when I see his eyes where he's at with all this. He'd become a minister. He's um, found out that he did five years in prison, years prior because eight other boys came forward, but found out that what he did with me alone would put him in much longer than he did even with the eight boys confessions. All that being said, I ended up in the room with him and the wife that he was still married to at the time that was with him when he was in prison and all of that. She was sat like a, she literally, when we got together in the conference room of his church, he was sobbing a mess almost the whole time. So I got his authentic place. She was poised, hands proper, first lady, not, fudged with any degree of emotion the whole time. And I, you know, I, so I made sure that I got prayed up for the weeks leading up to the trip. I'm like, Oh my God, Lord, I'm about to meet this man. All I knew was like, Lord, please, I'll be able to do this, but don't let me get in front of him or talk to him. And he try to bullshit some part of the story or say he didn't. 
then I knew I would lose my mind and probably go to jail. But I ended up the grace of this to my story, to my point about this download that I was given by God. What if nothing was broken? What if everything was strategically to support me? I ended up leading. I was like, let's take hands and, and, and let me pray. Because clearly you're broken. You're a fucking ice woman. I'm shattered in the ways that I'm shattered. And we all need a fresh start. And I asked us and I got us to hold hands. And I said a prayer for all of us to be healed. And as I was driving away from that session, that event with him, as emotional as I was and really still spun out and brain spinning, you know, because I had, this is when I was in my 30s, I realized that while, yes, he did what he did and it made me have to work out these things out and not honor my body, what it ultimately gave me because of how that prayer got to happen, I was given experiential evidence of unconditional love that I could actually come around Things could work out in a way for me, not just in relation to that, but then to family members, friends, a boss, whatever, so that when they do some inappropriate, I'm doing air quotes right now, do some quote unquote inappropriate thing that I, because of my perpetrator and the way that I went to deal with the roots of it, like Sergio has done, y'all. I was able to get to a place and I can now offer a caring space for somebody else, yeah. even if they have done me so-called dirty. So this is what this epiphany has done for me. And this is where I'm living my life from now, which again, to my main place in life right now is how do I get to live out my authentic self? Because surgery, I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I've lived most of my life from shoulds how I should show up, what I should wear, how I should laugh, how I should sit, craziness. And all of these freedoms, all of this deep work that you know we've been talking about doing here has afforded me that. So I'm the richest on the inside of me than I've ever been. And, and I say that the most so because I can look at, air quotes, the bad guy, and hold a space for them that is in support of them getting some care and some love so that they can go further in life in a better way than they did with me. No, and you're right. I mean, I think the, the thing we victims forget is that that grooming, that exposure sets us up for how we are going to interact in the world. And Absolutely. we don't realize that we, I did not realize the impact of my cousin trying to get me to jack him off, trying to him, trying to penetrate me, how just sat in the back of my mind. And I had never met anyone who had been assaulted, sexually assaulted, molested. And somehow I felt shame and I felt guilt, which mm -hmm. is the common thread. Every victim feels I'm like, there is yeah. something that happens that this is what we walk away with. And the other thing too, a book that I read that was very helpful was Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Actually, a lot of his books are wonderful. It's almost a, an extended version of what you said. What if nothing was broken? Mm -hmm. And he basically says, everything that's happened to you in your life is there to set you up to where you need to go. In my case, I grew up with a very abusive grandmother, but her anger and abuse 
is the fire I needed for me to get out, for me to mm. fight. So mm. I am grateful to her abuse mm. because her abuse let me know that this is not, this is not the life I want. And I remember being about five or six years old and I looking in the mirror and telling myself, this is not going to be my life. I am mm. going to get out of here. That is some, you know, looking back, that must have been some shit I experienced that at the age of five, wow. I'm telling myself because wow. I moved to the U.S. when I was six. So it was before I moved here. So somewhere between five or six, I remember looking in the mirror and thinking, this is not going to be my life. I'm That's going incredible. to get out of here. You know, so I feel fortunate that somehow in me, I have this desire to be more, to want more, to see more, to experience more. And through that process, through all that hurt, I don't, I don't. You know, it happened for a reason. And so many people have said this before. I don't want to change anything in my past because every one of those experiences put me where I am today. Sure. I, I agree with that. That being said, I could have taken a, a road that was not as windy. It would have been nice to somewhere along the way. You know, and I've been so lucky that my martial arts instructor, my junior high school teacher, Madonna's old father, I moved out of my, my grandmother's house. Uh, this makes me feel emotional, which is a reminder that there's still some healing I need to do. But I remember I bought a boombox and the first tape I ever bought was Madonna's Like a Prayer. Mm. And I would listen to the song, Oh, Father. And when the lyrics said, you can't hurt me now, I got away from you. That, that was my theme song. That was the song I would fall asleep to every oh. night. What a child would believe you never loved me. When I read those lyrics, it was just like someone punched me in the gut. And I remember, and I was getting away from my grandmother and my aunt. And I said, and I remember thinking, you can't hurt me. I got away from you. Mm. I never thought I could. And I couldn't. I, and this is when I finally came to, I was so aggressive. I was so ready to chop your head off if you came at me because I swore that I would never let anyone put me in that space again. Sure. And, and, and that's when I kind of fell in love with her because that was the song that just, I would fall asleep to every night. And also the song Promise to Try. I remember my grandmother passing away in 2000 and she caused me so much hurt. I remember listening to that song. It helped me feel a little empathy for her and mm -hmm. give her a little bit of, I guess, the, the kindness that I would have not given her otherwise. And, okay. and feeling this desire to, I was just so angry because she was so responsible for so much of my pain. And well, let, let me say, because, you know, cause you shared how, you know, the gift of her being so intense to you is that it helped you see the life that you wanted to get away from. Right. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I see, and I'm sure that you looked at it, but I just want to speak the word so that the listeners can grab these nuances is that it also gave you the gift of resilience. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, yes. And I'm so grateful for that. I mean, again, I have no anger towards my grandmother, plus she's dead. Um, but I, in one hand, I can say that I am grateful to everything she did because if it wasn't for her work ethic, I wouldn't be who I am. That being said, it came with the side of pain and hurt and shame and guilt that I had to work so hard to overcome. Sure. And- and I'm grateful for both those things because yeah. the resiliency I have now is because of her.
Mm-hmm. And absolutely. Yeah. And I had, and, you know, and I feel for her because she was handed a difficult hand. Sure. She was left with a little boy that wasn't hers and had to deal with him. And she was dealing with her own grievances, her own absolutely. hurt and pain. So, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, to add to this, another layer that I've looked at is again, because the order was put on my soul that my life is for service that I know whether it is service that looks like I dance a certain way. And so that ignites some people to get into learning what they want to do with their life, or I'm self-expressed to a certain degree at a certain season in my life that helps other people realize they too can be self-expressed and embrace their same sex interests or whatever. And now the work that I get to do with individuals and corporations and nonprofits as a coach, I realized that, you know, I don't even want to back down from how intense it was. Yeah. Because if we do that, how do we have an authentic voice for somebody else's journey that does have 12 layers to it? Yeah. If all we did was experience, like if we cut off and say, oh, but it shouldn't have been I just wish it wasn't quite so intense for me. Well, then how can you be a real voice of testimony for somebody's journey that has been that fucking intense? Yeah. No, and you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. right. Is that kind of empathy to develop not only for yourself, but just, you know, realizing, I know like when my grandmother was passing away and I realized now talking to you, the the Lack of Prayer album was such, such an important part of me crossing over from, I left the house, no idea where to go. I went to the rooftop Mm. of our building and I Mm. hid there. And then I called a friend of mine from high school and I spent the night at her on her floor and remember crying and thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I am 16 Mm. years old. I was making $4 and 25 cents an hour. And I somehow Mm. managed. And I remember my grandmother was passing away and I sat at the window. I didn't want her to see me because we hadn't spoken for a while. And I remember saying, God, if it's her time to go, please take her. She has suffered enough. Mm. And even in that limited time that I had, I remember thinking to myself, this woman has suffered her own doing and what was put on her. And I remember the song promise to try. And it said, you know, little girl, don't you forget her face laughing away your tears when she was the one who felt all the pain. And I remember hearing that and thinking, yes, this woman did hurt me, but she was suffering so much, you know, and as a little girl, don't you forget her eyes, keep them alive inside and promise to try. Um, And every time I heard that song, I thought of her and I thought of, I know that there was a lot of hurt that came with it, but look how much she was suffering. And with all that suffering, she still managed to provide for you. Absolutely. And I want to speak to to something that we both acknowledged earlier. And you were saying how um, when you were dating this person, when, when, when you were going to the airport for this person, you knew you had these super excited, ramped up feelings on the inside of how you want it to act. Yeah. But what you played out was counterintuitive to that. Correct. Mm -hmm. So makes me look at, as we say, you know, we don't know how troubled somebody is. And just because somebody is doing crazy to us 
doesn't mean they want to be. What if that person is aware? The same way that we can say, I want to be loving and joyous and hug you, but what I'm giving you is some cold shit. What if that person also knows that what they get drawn to do is what they shouldn't be doing, but because of their background, personal trauma, unresolved, whatever, 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 they don't have the mechanics to play it all the way out in a way that is caring and respectful and kind to us. Yeah. So I was given those nuances of, of, of understanding as well. Yeah. And one thing that I want to say, going back to how my perpetrator actually fueled me to be a better human through the realm of unconditional love. I was saying this to a guy because I, you know, listen, I found myself, my, my coaching work shows up sometimes in Ubers and Lyfts. Oh, yes. <laughs> Literally, like my, I'll end my... up having a driver <laughs> get out and like want to hug it out with me because they're in tears because I'm like, They'll, you know, because I'm chatty. So I'm always yeah. at, how you doing? How's your day going? What's going yeah. on? Somebody will tell me something. And then I'm like, okay, God, just do your thing. Yeah. And I was saying to this one guy, he was from, from Europe and he and his girlfriend, I guess, were thinking about leaving because they were having some issues with their landlord and they were having to get lawyers involved. And because it was all so crazy, he saw that LA was so not good for them and they should go home. And I said, well, wait a minute, but didn't it make you more? He's like, well, what do you mean? He's pissed me off. I'm like, yeah, but look at, and this is my conversation. These are the nuances for all of us to be aware of. Every single thing, Sergio's story, the grandmother, the people, the abuser, my perpetrator, my dad, all these things, all these things. If we can get with the work and calm ourselves down, it's filled our library. I, I, I call our soul our library, mm -hmm. right? Spirit is the ultimate. You can't fuck with it. You can't shake it down. You can't diminish how effective, how adept it is at anything. The human is extremely flawed. And then our soul is where our history lives, where our trauma lives, where our stories live. So if I'm in an issue with my perpetrator, that example, what's now in my library is a way of dealing with people that can be softer, gentler. I was saying to this guy with his landlord, I said, but don't, but because he was saying that he had to get some attorneys involved. I said, well, 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 look at how much better you are as a result of it. You now know lawyer language in a way that you never did before. You now know how to stand up in this particular niche realm of conversation and hold it and know which words to apply in a different way. So if we can calm down the heat, did the information or the crazy quote unquote air quotes in the air put more in you or take more away from you? Yeah. Even if you got beat up, had to go to the doctor, you got stabbed. They shot you in the side of your face. It doesn't matter. It fortified you with more information and more is better. You know how to talk to doctors better. You know how to research medicine better. You know yeah. how to. So these are the things that I look at, which feeds into the what if nothing was broken. That's true. That's what it keeps giving me. No, and you're right. I mean, I think one of the things that I got from reading Outliers, and I remember I sent it to my niece and I, I mean, when I read or encounter something I like, you would think I had stock in it. I will promote it to the end of time and, <laughs> totally. and tell everyone like, oh my God, you have to check this out. Yeah, Outliers yeah. was really good for me. Um, Untethered Soul 
was really good. That's a yeah. really great book yeah, yeah. that did yeah, wonders for me. Um, Esther Perel, she has a book titled Mating in Captivity, which she's phenomenal, incredible woman. Um, she has a TED talk and everything. And she talks about relationships and the things we do in them and how we behave and why things happen. It was very helpful to me. And I actually sent it to a bunch of my friends. I'm like, next time you get into a relationship, read this book. Um, and I want to add another book to, to our list that we're talking about right now for the listeners, all of you that are tuning into this. Because one of the books that helped me in regards to my same-sex activity, um, it's a very small book written by two PhD um, 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 priests. And their position in the, in the forward of the book is they're not here to say right or wrong or, 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 or good or bad. The book is literally called What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality. That's the <laughs> name of the book. Very subtle. And what... And what they do is, Sergio, that's so important for us, is they take all the references that exist throughout the entire Bible that looks like a shunning of our sexuality lifestyle and puts it into context of the time. Got it. Or context of the scenario that the Bible presents. And when it does it, I've had the book. I've gone through it twice. I'm like you. I also offer things off. I buy them for 10 people, four people, three people. That was such a great little but hugely powerful book because it gave distinctions to just broad strokes of statements that we've been run by. Yeah. Because it got you to see, well, no wonder they bashed homosexuality because one example that they say that about is after a grown person in the Bible is taking advantage of a young person or getting the young person to do a thing in a really unhealthy way. So of course they're going to, of course the perspective is that you shouldn't be doing this, yeah. but it's not, not doing the act if it were a loving act. Where is the example in the Bible? I've read the Bible twice as a grown adult from front to back where the presentation of our lifestyle is coming from a soul loving, caring example. It does not exist. Yeah. And that's why the behavior has been shunned because it's not about same sex behavior. It's about out of integrity behavior that is yeah. ultimately shunned. And that book, what the Bible really says about homosexuality, it gives you those distinctions. And it helped me save my life as a man that likes men. Yeah. I mean, I don't like men, but you know, they're fun to be around. <laughs> yeah, wow. I wish y'all could see my face right now because I'm a little in <laughs> awe. And there's a bubble coming out of my mouth that said, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's true. And I actually marked the book you recommended. I marked it. So when um, I will check that out. Yeah, but yes, totally. no, this I, has been. I would really be, Sergio, I would love to talk to you. After reading about it? The after reading it, I, I would be really curious, especially with your Catholic upbringing, to see, you know, because you, you've done enough work now that I know that you can separate yourself enough to get into some God conversation, reading nuance, Bible specifics, and not have to take it personally. I'm mm -hmm. going to say that I know that you got that ability. So mm -hmm. I would love to see what somebody like you that 
is willing and has been doing the deep work, I'd be very curious to see how you perceive what they present. Yeah, I'm over. I mean, I, I just uh, another book I just marked is The Body Keeps Score. Uh, this book has oh, been recommended by so many people and basically saying whatever experiences we have, our body stores it and it impacts the way we do things. So that's another book I have in my queue. <clears throat> I need to read that book because that plays into why I created my coaching program, Dance Formation, which is the first ever movement based through dance life coaching program. I'm actually inside of doing a round of it right now. Did some work on it on Saturday, gearing up to do another round in July. Um, but that work, how God gave that to me is because of the cellular impact mm -hmm. from trauma. Yeah. And again, traditional therapy is only going to deal with from the head up yeah. and what transformation has allowed the participant to do is cause the body to shake around yeah. the crevices where the traumas and the regrets and the horror lives as it says body is what what's the name of the book the body keeps score yeah i mean i have to look what? it up but i the title is around that and i marked it in my queue of books that i need to get so that's another one yeah. in there for me music has been very healing like when i'm feeling mm -hmm. particularly down i have a playlist of songs that put me in a better mood um yeah uh, that song oh father was the first song that i realized lyrics this song was able to give words to how i was feeling at the time, I didn't, mm. I didn't have that ability. So a lot of music, mm. I will listen to a song. And if it takes me on a journey, I'm like, wow, Sia, I mean, Sia's album of music is therapy, you know, the singer Sia. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I remember when, if I ever do my life story, I always say it will be a musical. And when I do this section about my grandmother, if I'm able to, the song promise to try would be the song. I'd, but I remember, mm. and I read this section of the lyrics. It says, little girl, don't run away so fast. I think you forgot to kiss, kiss her goodbye. Will she see me cry when I stumble and fall? Does she hear my voice in the night when I call? Wipe away all my tears. It's going to be all right. I fought mm. to be so strong. I guess you knew I was afraid you'd go away too. Little girl, you've got to forget the past and learn to forgive me. I promise to try, but it feels like a lie. Don't let memories play games with your mind. She's a faded smile frozen in time. I'm still hanging on, but I'm doing it wrong. Can't kiss her goodbye, but I promise to try. And I think of well, my grandmother when I hear that. And I remember thinking, you know, don't run away so fast. I wanted to get away from there so quickly. I wanted to leave it all behind me. You know, and then we, San Francisco got hit with a really big earthquake in 1989. I had just moved out. Mm. It was a World Series happening between the Giants and the 49ers. Is that, no, wait. The A, the Oakland A's and the Giants. The 49ers are a football team. And that happens in October. I had moved out in September. So it was like my first earthquake. The city was pitch black. And I promised that I would never go back. And when I heard this song and, you know, Madonna releases like prayer, all these things, it's like, you know, don't let your memory play games with your mind. Yes, it was awful, but it was also good. And, mm. you know, like and the song just really helped me give shape and not make it so angry and bitter because Lord, was I angry. Ooh, I could yeah. feel the country. I could have lit up an entire country. Yeah, I think a great way for us to close this. So I say, you know, wrapping this up, 
on the heels of everything the surgeon and I have said, promise to try. Just promise to try. Yeah. And if you stay in that try, if you stay in that little bit of faith, like Sergio's life, like my life, you will be organically guided to the next step and the next step and the next step that will amplify your freedom and your authentic living that is supposed to be your version. True. So that's I, what I have to say. I totally agree with that. We are now going to get to my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you rapid fire questions. What is one thing you want to improve about yourself? My faith in God. If you could get rid of one thing in the world, what would it be? Doubt. What do you wish people knew about you that they don't? That I have a gentle soul. Finish this sentence. I feel most insecure when? I don't trust myself. Finish this sentence. I feel most confident when? I trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> What's your definition of love? Ooh, unconditional support. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? Mm, at this stage of the game, I would go to the Maldives. Yes, because it just feels luscious and it's water and you're private and it's lovely. Yeah. Your happy song is? My happy song is Happy Birthday. What's a hidden talent you possess? Um, I can go many days without a lot of sleep. <laughs> What would you tell your 15-year-old self? It, you will be okay and it will all work out. Well, excellent. It is so great to chat with you. And I mean, I will include sure. your website. I'll include all your handles so then people have access to you. We, We all have a story. What's, What's yours? yours? What's yours?